It's Wednesday, March 30th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Morgan Housel. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you. It's lovely out See, there. See, this isn't is it? a good representation of what we talk about a lot in the show, and that is you've spent three to four dollars on coffee. I I do the free stuff upstairs in my own mug. <laughs> this is just this is just this is it's just a good representation of the the financial differences between it's one of the many financial the differences. budgetary differences. The budgetary, but here's the thing. Here's the, so I'm, I've got a Starbucks cup in front of me, but that's changing because now, just across the street from Full Global Headquarters, a brand spanking new Dunkin' Donuts. But they're open this morning. Why? Why did you go to Starbucks? I, you know, I needed a little bit of food, and uh, yeah. so and you didn't I, want donuts. I didn't want donuts. I wanted a, a breakfast sandwich, so I went over to the Starbucks. But in general, expect to see a lot more Dunkin' Donuts coffee in front of me, which is cheaper. So, on a percentage basis, I'm going to be saving money better. over the next twelve months. You're going to be spending the exact same amount of money, which is zero. I'm just saying, directionally, <laughs> mine's going the way it should be. Right. You need to for you, for you to make this work on a percentage basis. You need to find someone who's going to pay you to drink their coffee. That's correct. That's right. And let's face it, we've both had coffee that's bad enough that, frankly, people should be paying for it. <laughs> All right. Enough about coffee, because this is not a coffee podcast. Although I'm sure there are like multiple coffee podcasts out there, because there's a podcast for everything. Too many. That's one of the. No, there aren't too many. No, there are too many. The, really. Probably. Do you listen to podcasts? No. You don't? No. No, I do, actually. A few. I used to because I used to commute, but I don't anymore. You don't, yeah, you don't really have a commute. No, no I walk to work. All right. Um, let's talk about the market. I, I want to talk about your trip out uh, to LA. We'll get to that. Um, last week on the radio show, we, we sort of stepped back and looked at where we are a quarter of the way into 2016. Holy cow! It started off so badly, and or I think the combination of the market drop with the volatility, and in certainly indiv- certain individual stocks just tanking right out of the gate, and then things have evened out. Things are fine. When when you look at the market right now, what do you see? Well, you know, it's been the market today is roughly where it was two years ago, thereabouts. Uh, you know that that shouldn't surprise investors. You know the stock market doesn't owe you anything, and that you should expect a positive return every year, every calendar year, every 365 days. It is pretty rare that we would have a two-year period where stocks are basically flat. I've done a lot in between, but are basically flat. Most periods that you would look at, two or five-year periods historically, the markets are either way up or way down. So it, it it is kind of unique that we're in this position right now, where we're just kind of bouncing up and down, but not really going anywhere. Uh, but it, it, you know, it's probably a good thing. We had such a giant rally. I was just going to say, I, I I would have taken that two years ago. Yeah, and we've had such a giant rally from 2009 to 2013, or stocks just just boomed and did extraordinarily well. It's probably good to reset expectations, and not to get too used to having just massive returns year after year. To have a period of a year or two or three or who knows how long it'll last, where people realize what the cost of investing is, and that's you're not always going to get what you want. I was yeah, a couple of years ago, armed with that data, I I would have absolutely taken a flat market through early 2016 because yeah. certainly, I would say 15 months ago, I mean I was expecting I was expecting 2015 to be down 10 percent. Yeah, down fifteen percent for the year. Well, you like all market forecasters are 
are wildly detached from reality. So, <laughs> I, I am many things. Fortunately, a market forecaster is not one of them. <laughs> um, let me get your reaction to a recent poll that Bloomberg did about about spending, and in particular about uh, spending here in the United States. Thirteen percent of people who responded to this poll said that when they're buying goods, they want the lowest possible price. Yeah. 82% said their preference is not the lowest possible price, it's for goods that are made in the USA. Yeah. Well, when, when, whenever people talk about polls, I like to point out that about 35% of Americans think the sun revolves around the Earth. So, you know, you should always be careful when we're looking at polls that they're actually going to tell you something useful and practical about the world. So, when, when people say, you know, for these polls, I would prefer made in American goods uh, and I'm willing to pay up for that, that's what they say, but it's not what people do in reality. It's not what people, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that, it's another to actually do that with your wallet, and people don't. And it's, it's important right now in this presidential election. We're talking a lot about trade packs and tariffs and imports and exports. This is a really important topic right now. At the end of the day, people, by and large, want what's you know the balance between cheap and quality. And often that that balance skews towards people just want cheap goods. And the cheapest goods for a lot of products are going to come from uh, from from imports, things that are made in in other countries. And then so you know if we had. If if we heaven forbid we had not, you know we just shut down the borders and we just went total protectionist and we're not going to import anything everything's going to be made in America the price of goods would surge and people would suddenly realize that there is a, a, a cost to doing that you know there's there's a long history of countries taking these policies that are protectionist and saying we're going to have high tariffs we're not going to we're not going to focus on imports we're going to we're going to build here in our country to strengthen our own to strengthen our own our own country. It ends in disaster almost every time. It was especially true during the Great Depression. That was one of the big things we did in the 1930s to try to strengthen the economy. Was uh, you know countries around the world became really protectionist about their own goods, and it has a long history of you know it works in theory and it makes a lot of sense, especially to voters. It sounds great. It's easy to pitch to them. The history of it working is is pretty bad. So these polls don't surprise me, but I think that the context of people. What people really want at the end of the day, which are cheap goods, that's what's going to win out in the end. See, I, I'm trying to think about this just on an emotional level, and just sort of the feeling that you get when you buy something beyond just sort of what is the the thing you have just bought. And I get that that sort of positive feeling because assuming, I'm assuming that at least part of what is driving people to say, well, I would rather buy something made in the USA. It's it's on a gut level. It's I I it makes me feel patriotic. It makes me it makes me feel good. I feel better having bought this thing. I get that more on the local level, and yeah. this is just my own experience. But I get if I go to a local farmers market, I go to a local independent shop. I'm almost certainly going to pay more for something in in an independent shop or at a farmers market than I would pay if I went to. A giant or a Safeway or something like that, but there's some there's there is a nice feeling about like oh I I bought this from a local farmer. I think it's definitely true. It's it's also really easy to oversimplify this stuff and say if we make goods in America, that means we're going to have more money here in America. That's like that's the pitch that candidates put forward, and it sounds simple and makes a lot of sense, but it's so much more complicated than that. If we have a trade deficit, 
with China, meaning that we are importing more goods from China than we're exporting. That means China is going to end up with a surplus of U.S. dollars because we're buying more from them than they're buying from us. So they're going to have U.S. dollars. And they have to do something with those dollars. And what they do with them traditionally is buy treasury bonds and buy U.S. assets and U.S. real estate. And that boosts the economy. You know, when they when the Chinese buy treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities, that helps keep our interest rates low, which helps keep your mortgage low, which helps keep your bills low. So it's one thing to say we would be better off if we kept the jobs here. But once you start really going A to B to C and seeing how the global economy all connects together, it's really not that simple. The last time you were in the studio, we talked about how you had been tapped by the people who run the Gerald Loeb Awards. For anyone listening unfamiliar, the Loeb Awards are to financial and business journalism what the Academy Awards are to movies. Um, You had been tapped, you're a former Loeb nominee, and they tapped you to judge an award. Uh, You went out to Los Angeles for the judging. Yep. I know I can't ask you who did you pick and what, but remind listeners uh, the category and then whatever insight you can share about the process. I'm just, I'm curious about how this sort of thing works. Yeah. So the category that I was uh, tapped to judge were graphics and uh, videos, things that are interactive. So not the written word, but the visuals is what I was, is, is the, the category. This is probably in. the newest category. Yeah. But the, the you know, I, I can't give any details about the entries, but. Me and my, and my fellow judges were pretty blown away. And I can say there were uh, dozens of contestants in our category. And I'm not exaggerating to say everyone was a contender. Every single we, wow. were, we were pretty blown away with what is being done out there uh, in, uh, in the journalism world. And I think judges from other categories that were judging the traditional written word in journalism felt the same. The quality of business journalism right now, uh, in, in my opinion, is about as high as it's ever been. And to make it even better, a lot of it is free. Well, that's good for the consumer, less right. so for <laughs> the people who are trying to make a business out of it. But there is so much excellent free content out there today. And I think we overlook that a lot, that in the past, not only, not only was there exponentially less, but it was a lot more expensive. And it's really become kind of the great equalizer. And that's something like, that if you have a smartphone today, no matter where you are in the world, you have probably more access to good financial education and journalism and content than most professionals did 20 or 30 years ago. And I think we take that for granted a lot. I think we probably do, and that's certainly very heartening to hear, particularly because I think it's easy to look at parts of financial journalism or any journalism for that matter, but this is a business show, so we'll stick with finance. I think it's easy to look at parts of financial journalism that are not as high quality or maybe contribute to the types of investment approaches that in the long term don't work out for the majority right. of people and say, uh, and you know, a pox on all your houses. So it's it's heartening to hear that these were really tough decisions. Also, I'm a little surprised, but in a good way. That you and your colleagues go out there, you're judging in this category, and everyone is a contender. Because I right. would just assume, because here's the thing, just to go back to the movie industry for a second, there are a lot of great movies every year, but when people before the Academy Award nominations come out, 
pretty much everyone has whittled down the list. It's pretty right. easy to whittle right. down from 200 movies to, well, these are the 10 to 15 that are probably going to get nominated for Best Picture. Nobody's going, wow, every one of these movies. And you know, before we started judging, that's kind of how I thought it would be. I thought we'd sit down with a lot of entries and it was going to be instantly obvious who the winners were going to be. And it was it was tough because the quality was so good across tons of different media outlets, whether they were, you know, large deep-pocketed media organizations or smaller, you know, online platforms. I mean, it was just great stuff all around. So that it was that was encouraging to see. Remind me of the timing of when the final nominees are announced, and then when do the winners get announced? The final nominees will be announced sometime in May, and then the finalists are picked uh, at the end of June. Nice. Earlier in the week, Jason Moser and Taylor Muckerman were in here. We talked about trips we had each made recently, uh, and the idea that. It's really tough to shut off the investing part of the brain for us anyway. I'm assuming it is the case for you as well. Los Angeles is a city you've spent plenty of time in. Yeah. Any any investing thoughts hit your brain? Not necessarily at the Loeb Awards when you were working, but just your leisure time in LA. Any any investing takeaways? You know, I I'd say two things. So I lived in Southern California around the Los Angeles area during the uh mid-2000s, which was, especially in Southern California, sort of the epicenter of the credit boom. And uh, it blew me away. Good times that were never, ever going to end. Right, right. (laughs) But LA, I think, and it still is, but LA is much less materialistic now than it was then. I think some people would disagree with that, but I've really seen it compared to what it was in 2004, 5, 6. Give me an example. See, it's it's hard. I, I I don't know if I could really put my finger on it. It's just kind of a cultural sense that I get that back then it was so, you know, the philosophy of Southern California was based around how much debt can I take out to buy the highest quality stuff that I can't afford from cars to clothes to homes. And I think through necessity, but also just a change in preferences nationwide, but I really see it in LA because the extremes are so big. That's toning down, I think, and then that's that's a, a positive development, I think. The other thing in Los Angeles, uh, and, and this might seem counterintuitive to what I just said, but I, I don't think it's that connected. So Los Angeles, Southern California was sort of the epicenter of the housing bubble. You know, prices in Southern California during the boom were just off the charts, and then they collapsed in 2009, 10, 11, and a lot of those places. This is true throughout a lot of the country too. Are bouncing back uh, and a- approaching, if not exceeding. The highs that we had during the housing bubble ten years ago, which I don't think virtually anyone would have expected if you said that five or six years ago. Is that a good thing, or is that something making people nervous? And by people, I mean you. I think it makes people nervous because we're so, you know, we're we're just barely recovered from the housing bubble. We're still kind of like we're still healing from the from the from the wounds, and all of a sudden, boom, we're right back to where we were. So I, I think it will make a lot of people nervous. I think one of the reasons that it is. There are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I think about is home builders are still really scarred from the housing bust. And a lot of them went out of business. Some of them don't even exist anymore. And the survivors are really scarred from building way more homes that they could ever sell. And so I think we're at a point in the housing cycle where we're not building a lot of new homes. We're not building as many as we should because the home builders are still scared because the bubble was not that long ago. Um, so I, you know that'll probably change one day. But we're at an area where 
consumers are back out there wanting to buy homes, and home builders are kind of saying, no, not yet. We're still scared. <laughs> so that discrepancy between those is pushing up prices. Thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>